welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Really happy to have you along. Uh, those of you downloading, streaming, however it is you're listening to the podcast, thank you. I am so grateful. Counterpunch is grateful for your continued support. And if you, like me, believe that Counterpunch is important, that alternative media on the left is important, please consider becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. It's a great way to support Counterpunch. It's a great way to make sure that your dollars go to defending these spaces that we have online, spaces where we can have the kind of leftist sort of debates and discourse that we really need in these times. I mean, as we gear up for the inane uh, slugfest and, and, and mud wrestling challenge that will be the election in 2020, I think it's all the more important that we have these sort of go-to resources like Counterpunch available to us. And um, I know that I personally get a great deal of uh, gratitude um, and, well, no, gratification is the word I'm looking for. Yes, gratification for being a supporter of Counterpunch, and I have been for quite a long time now. So uh, get on the phone. You can call the Counterpunch office, get your subscription that way, or simply make a donation. Or if you don't want to get the subscription, you could just make a donation through the PayPal. So with that said, I want to turn to my guest today. There's so many developments down in South America, and in particular in Brazil, that I really want to unpack a lot of what's happened in the last few months because well, many of us in the uh, in the United States and in the global north have become consumed by the daily uh, soap opera of Trump and so many other stories that it's very easy to miss a tremendous amount of developments uh, that are going on in Latin America and not just in Venezuela, of course, also in Brazil. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Um, very excited to talk to Brian Meyer. Brian is the editor at Brazil Wire. And let me just say, if you're not following Brazil Wire, you absolutely have to because this is one of maybe my two or three go-to sources for all things happening in Brazil from a left perspective but one that is really fact-based rooted in real journalism and real reporting I couldn't recommend them more highly uh, so Brian is the editor over at Brazil Wire again that's Brazil with an S for us gringos up north and uh, the new book Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Uh, as we're recording, that book is just about to drop in a matter of uh, hours, but uh, by the time you're hearing this, the book will be available. So I would recommend you go and buy it directly from Brazil Wire. Uh, go to the website, brazilwire.com, and get yourself a copy of the book. Get yourself two copies and get one to a friend who needs to know about what's happening down there in Brazil. So anyway, uh, that's my long introduction. Let me welcome him on the show. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on and for all of the work you do. And um, since we have so much to talk about and not enough time to cover it all, let's just jump right into it. We had the election of Bolsonaro just a few months ago. But I, listeners to this show on, on, on this page don't need uh, necessarily a, a full summary of everything that's happened. I think we know who Bolsonaro is, the far right wing, uh, now president of Brazil, I think uh, probably I, I would say uh, almost a textbook case of fascism in the 21st century, although I guess that's somewhat debatable depending on who you ask. Um, but most importantly, this represents a tectonic shift in terms of the politics as we've seen the developments over the last few years. And I want to talk about some of those changes with you, Brian. So just in the last few months since Bolsonaro has come to power, we've seen significant developments in terms of street politics and elsewhere in the Brazil 
Brazilian body politic. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these changes that you have witnessed occurring? There's a lot of misconceptions about why Bolsonaro won the election. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with um, group people like Steve Bannon helping out on the social media campaign, which was built around hate speech and using the WhatsApp application, mainly um, gay bashing, basically, and homophobia. And so since, since the elections, 50% of the LGBTQ plus population in Brazil has been has suffered aggression, either verbal or physical, which represents a major increase. And we see that the first openly gay congressman, John Willys, had to leave the country because of death threats. And I know a lot of um, gay people who are telling me they want to leave. I, I know a couple of people who are already planning on leaving the country. And so things have just gotten a lot darker. You know, the first month of uh, Rio de Janeiro's new governor, who's like what we call the people who follow Bolsonaro, we call them Bolsominions. And so the new governor of Rio is a Bolsominion who's announced that police should have the right to just set up sniper posts and shoot random drug dealers on the street. His state police killed 180 people in January in Rio de Janeiro. So things are getting pretty dark in Brazil right now. But at the same time that that's happening, um, the left is more united than I've ever seen it in 25 years living in Brazil. There were 70,000 people on the streets in Sao Paulo two weeks ago protesting the neoliberal pension reforms, which were uh, which. Temer was unable to push through because of strikes and protests. And it looks like this is the real battle right now. The two battles down here are to get Lula out of jail and to block the pension reforms. It looks like the pension reform protests are getting pretty successful now because 137 evangelical Christian congressmen just dropped their support for the pension reforms because they've done the math and they've decided that, you know, if they drop minimum retirement payments in half, that means a lot of elderly people won't be giving as much money to their churches. So that's what's going on right now. I mean, in one sense, it's really depressing, you know, and in another sense, it's kind of inspiring to see how, you know, the the Brazilian left has always been kind of factional and a lot of infighting, but now it's pretty, pretty well united. And pretty well organized. So the battle, the battle's on right now. You know, we don't know how what how it's going to play out. Oh, definitely. And I want to return to some of those uh, developments that you just discussed, including questions about Lula and, and and the ongoing struggle around that. But just to finish up the point about some of the developments uh, around the country since Bolsonaro's ascendance to power, uh, you mentioned the attacks on LGBTQ communities and uh, some of the other uh, marginalized communities in the urban uh, settings in Brazil. And that's, of course, a major, major issue. The assassination of Marielle Franco uh, 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 not long ago was, I think, highlights some of those struggles that are still ongoing. But I also want to know a little bit of what you can tell us about what's happening in the rural areas where some of the landless peasants movements and the and, and, and some of the other rural movements, the social movements there have been tremendously targeted by the landowners and others. Is the violence they're escalating and what about the violence uh, against the indigenous peoples throughout Brazil is that escalating as well tell us about those developments well you know there's never been a moment when the, in Brazil's history 
really, frankly, when there hasn't been really bad violence against indigenous peoples in Brazil since it was since the Europeans first arrived. And a lot of times it's private sector. You know, it's like gunmen who are hired by ranchers who want to expand their lands into Indian indigenous reservations. And with the landless peasants movement also, it's like, um, you know, hired gunmen have always been attacking them. On average, every year since they founded in the 1980s, there have been, you know, 8 to 10 to 20, some years 50 or 60 people assassinated in their um, agrarian reform camps. However, what's happened now is this has been institutionalized. So now we have a president who's openly supporting these ranchers and their gunmen and who's tried to push through legislation, first of all, declaring the MST, the landless, uh, they're officially called in Portuguese, you know, like landless rural workers movement. People used to call them the landless peasants movement, but they, uh, they tr- Bolsonaro's people tried to have them declared as a terrorist organization when everything they do is completely legal. I mean, they, they worked to pass a people's constitutional amendment in 1988, giving landless uh, rural workers the right to squat on land, to homestead on land that wasn't being used productively or that was stolen, you know? So, and the government set up an agency to help facilitate that. That agency has been shut down by Bolsonaro. Now he's trying to declare them terrorists. Uh, the first attempt to do that failed was blocked in Congress, but they're, you know, the language is still there and they're keeping, they're going to keep trying to do that. And when we talk about the MST, we're talking about around one and a half million people in the countryside living in these MST agrarian reform settlements. And that's about 10% of the rural population, really, because Brazil's like 90% urban now. So it's a large, it's a significant percentage of small farmers living out in the countryside who are now under threat of violence. And regarding the indigenous reservations, you know, the treatment of indigenous peoples in Brazil is horrible. I have a friend whose father, she told me her father used to get paid one minimum salary in the 1950s to kill Indians for the mayor's office in a town called Londrina in Paraná. So there's a lot more indigenous people in Brazil than appear on the census because it was like a death sentence to have people think you were indigenous up until as late as the 1950s and 1960s in Brazil. But now Bolsonaro's just announced he's going to open up indigenous reservations for mining and logging without, you know, needing the permission of the people who live there. So basically it's just giving away the indigenous reservations to big business and, you know, foreign mining companies and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, these are some of the last places in some parts of Brazil that still have, have virgin rainforest cover. So it's bad for the, it's horrible for the environment. It's horrible for the indigenous people as well. You know, it's actually extremely depressing. No. It most certainly is, and unfortunately, it, it it's all too reminiscent of many of the policies that we see of Donald Trump, and I think obviously the parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump are self-evident, and probably we don't need to elaborate all of them, but needless to say that the 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 
vitriol and and hatred and and really a historical uh, understanding of the place of indigenous people of immigrants and others as we've seen in the United States with the trumpism uh, the, the politics of trumpism it seems quite similar in Brazil uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the similarities that you've seen uh, between not so much Donald Trump as an individual and bolsonaro as an individual but some of the common threads that you've noticed between the trumpism of the last three years and what you're seeing emerging in in terms of the, let's call it the politics of the Bolsonaro era? Well, I think there's, there's similarities and differences. You know, the similarities are in the way that Bolsonaro was elected. I mean, he was elected with almost no television airtime, entirely through social media campaigns of lies and hate speech that technically were illegal in Brazil for many reasons. You know, Folio do São Paulo newspaper did a study that showed that, did an investigative report that showed that um, the funding for this social media hate campaign on WhatsApp was came from outside of Brazil. It was foreign companies paying for it. It was a legal slush fund that was set up, and the hate speech is illegal in Brazil. So uh, that, in a sense of like you know, spamming all of these crazy made-up stories over the internet to targeted groups of followers, resembled the way Trump got elected. I think you know, um, and. You see many of the issues. Bolsonaro is a big fan of Trump, so he's picked up many of Trump's issues, and especially Bolsonaro's sons, who are hobnobbing with Steve Bannon and the European far right. They've picked up issues sometimes which don't even apply. For example, immigrant bashing. Brazil is, has 0.4% foreign-born population. It doesn't have a lot of immigrants. A lot of immigrants came 100 years ago. It's not like a place where people are just dying to move to. Because the economy is not that good. The minimum salary is like $300 a month. You know, so it's not exactly filling up with immigrants. But there have been cases of mobs like uh, attacking groups of immigrants at the border with Venezuela. There was a case last week of a Baptist preacher feeding broken glass to a Colombian immigrant in a meal he was giving him. All this crazy stuff going on. And it's just... It's, to- it's just totally toxic. So I feel like he's influenced heavily by Trump. Um, but there's something else going on because he's an actual fascist. You know, Trump, you can say Trump acts like a fascist and does some things that are fascist. But uh, Bolsonaro was a, a military captain in what Noam Chomsky, someone like Chomsky would call like a sub-fascist or a client fascist dictatorship. In the 70s and now he's got 16 cabinet members from that dictatorship you know so it's a little it's farther to the right than than trump you know and the checks and balances are weaker down here now especially since the the judiciary has gotten so much power the judiciary being always a bastion of the right in brazil an elite right organization the only branch of government that's not elected so I would say, in a way, comparing the two, Trump is a, a right-wing guy with, who uses a lot of fascist techniques and fascist fear-mongering and hate in the way that his government operates in the U.S. But uh, Bolsonaro is like a real fascist who's now 100% subordinate to Trump. And people are saying now it just seems like the U.S. Has turned, the Brazil has turned into a U.S. proxy state. There's no more, you know, division between 
Brazilian foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy, there used to be some autonomy and sovereignty down here and self-determination. It's out the window. Like both, uh, Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. So when Bolsonaro took office, he flew to Jerusalem and moved. He's moving the Brazilian embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, it's going to cause have serious economic ramifications for Brazil because 50% of the meat exported from Brazil went to the Arab world, and now they're all saying they're going to boycott it. So Trump says something bad about China, Bolsonaro's bad-mouthing China. And it's just like there's no more, you know, the, for example, if, if the PT was still in power, they never would have entered any kind of foray into Venezuela the way Bolsonaro is getting on board with this now. And even some members of his own cabinet are against it. It's so antithetical to anything that Brazil has stood for foreign policy-wise for the last hundred years that they would actually attack one of their neighbors. It's just outrageous, you know? Indeed, and, and, and yet that is the reality, and it's so, it's so insane that we're talking about this reality in 2019 when literally just a few years ago, Latin America was in many ways dominated by left-wing governments and governments that some of which were explicitly socialist, some of which were more social democratic, I would say, like in Brazil. Uh, but on the, on the whole, uh, certainly we've seen this radical shift rightward, perhaps with the exception of AMLO in Mexico, but that I think is an outlier more than anything. Uh, so I think that that's an interesting uh, development that we, of course, have to monitor. But I want to just ask you, before we shift away from Bolsonaro specifically, one of the things that I was really concerned about uh, in the lead up right up to the elections was uh, some videos that I saw of what looked like, and I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm overreacting, but they looked like fascist paramilitaries. I mean, they looked like regular, ordinary people who were dressed up in paramilitary uniforms doing paramilitary exercises as essentially like essentially brown shirts on the streets. And uh, there was a lot of anti-gay rhetoric. There was a lot of racist rhetoric, a lot of things that, that, that I saw in that. And I, I guess I just wonder, I mean, were those just some videos that I saw or are we seeing uh, street gangs and other types of quasi-fascist, quasi-paramilitary sorts of formations? Well, you know, in Rio de Janeiro, where Bolsonaro's power base is, there have been fascist paramilitary opera, uh, organizations called militias made up mainly of current or former military or military police members who now dominate the territory in about a quarter of the city. Uh, and when I say dominate, I mean they, they charge all the residents for pirate satellite TV. They make everyone buy their cooking gas from them. They charge extortion money from the local business owners. And they enforce justice, a very strict justice system, which includes shooting people for smoking marijuana and stuff. And these people are very connected to the Bolsonaro family. In fact, the leader, now one of these militias is being investigated for the assassination of city councilwoman Marielle Franco. And the, the guy they arrested lived two doors down from Bolsonaro in this luxury gated condominium way out of reach from the average retired police sergeant, you know, two doors down from the president. And then it turned out that Bolsonaro's son had dated the guy's daughter. And uh, Bolsonaro's other son employed uh, the wife and the mother of the leader of this militia that's been investigated in Franco's death. 
in his cabinet for like 10 years. And then Bolsonaro's own political party's treasurer in Rio de Janeiro turned out to be the sister of another guy from one of these militias. So there's a, and they're, they're super right wing, but they're like a mafia. They're like mafias, you know, they're organized crime organizations. As far as like jackbooted thugs and brown shirts marching down the street, beating up people, it's not that systematic at the moment. I mean, that might have been something people were doing around election time, but I haven't, I haven't seen, I mean, there's a history of like, Nazi skinheads and stuff like that in southern Brazil in Sao yeah, Paulo. That's uh, exactly what it looked like. Well, some of them, some of the newly elected uh, politicians from Bolsonaro's party and also from the Dem Party, Democratas, which is the uh, modern version of the official military dictatorship party, which is also far right wing. Like some of them, when they got on the street, you notice that some of their bodyguards are skinheads and things like that. But it's, it's not something that's like taking, I don't think that, you know, skinheads and neo-Nazis is really taking over the country at this point. I mean, you see some people, there's always been a little of it and maybe more in the South, you know, but not so much in the North and Northeast, but right. it's, tr- it's, it's troubling either way. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and the reason I bring it up is not because uh, I had, you know, any illusions about, you know, fascist gangs running wild in every city in Brazil, but rather the, the, the worry is that a relatively small but yet significant and organized network of these types of organizations with direct loyalty to a fascist president, that is the danger. Not that they're necessarily going to overrun the streets of every city, but rather that, a you know, this type of nationwide network of criminal gangs would be answering directly to the president and would act as a de facto, you know, uh, private army. Well, there's, you know, there's been some people suggesting that that might be happening. I mean, there's been some, some people saying that Bolsonaro's kids are trying to start something like this, you know, but once again, most in the South and Southeast, it's important to note that the PT party which, you know, Lula's helped found, they made serious gains in the Northeast. So the Northeast of the country now, every governor is from the PT and the governors control the police force. And it's very solidly left wing. And that's a, that's the second largest region in terms of population in Brazil. And so that, uh, so a lot of this support for fascism is concentrated in the Southeast of the country and in the South. And, you know, Brazil is a country of continental proportions that basically a lot of the big cities in Brazil didn't have, they had more contact with Portugal than they did with other cities in Brazil until as recently as the 1950s, because there weren't roads connecting a lot of them. You know, Brazil's about as big as the entire continental United States plus half of Alaska in size. And so there's, it seems like when you go from state to state, it's almost like going from one country to another country. And so this kind of like Bolsonaro, but and it's also important to note, okay, so this, I would say right now in Brazil, I would say in Brazil, there's always been, since I moved here in 1991, a core group of 15 to 20% of the population that is straight up fascist, that love the dictatorship. And those are the people who support Bolsonaro right now. But it's important to note that his popularity has plummeted since he took office. When he took office, he had support of 65% of the population. And it's dropped now to 26%. So it's 
and that's only in a hundred days. So at the same time that there's this fascist, it seems like the fascist um, upswing could be kind of fizzling out because they're not spending as much money in the social media anymore. And some of his own followers are getting fed up with him, you know, and his, uh, he, uh, his own coalition is arguing internally. There seems to be a split between the military members of his cabinet and the wacko, you know, like Steve Bannon style folkloric cabinet members who, who are talking about like firing all the communists from the education department and stuff. And the military, for example, the military broke with the military and the head of Congress broke with Bolsonaro on intervention in Venezuela. And that's why when they sent, when they had that whole fiasco of sending humanitarian aid to Venezuela, Brazil only sent two pickup trucks with like, you know, a couple of tons of rice on it. That was all they could muster because the military said they didn't want to have anything to do with it. So we're not, we're really not sure. I mean, even the, the Economist, which Bolsonaro's followers now call the e-communist, because everything left of the far right is communist to them now, even the Economist. Uh, the, even the Economist is saying that they're not sure if Bolsonaro is going to last for the rest of the year. But if if he falls, it's going to be the military that takes over. So it's not not that much better of a scenario, except they would cut off Bolsonaro's scumbag children from their loving relationship with Steve Bannon and the European far right white supremacist crowd. You know, so it could be marginally better. And I I think it's probably also worth noting, not that we would necessarily welcome a military takeover, of course, but uh, the fact that, and I appreciate you bringing it up because I was going to bring it up myself, uh, it, it might be beneficial at the very least from the perspective of regional stability if the military is at least sane enough to understand that any kind of intervention into Venezuela could have catastrophic consequences for not only Brazil, but really for all of Latin America. So at least in that regard, it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at least it seems like those voices from the military side of his coalition uh, are at least, uh, let's say, pragmatic in their outlook. If someone had told me five years ago that I'd be sitting here saying I'd rather have the military take over, I would tell them they were out of their minds. <laughs> but thing, that's how bad things have got now, that I'm actually thinking that the military would be better than Bolsonaro. That's totally insane. And on that insane note, I think we should jump to a break. Uh, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about Lula and what's recently happened with former President uh, Temer and uh, some of the political developments over uh, in Brazil, but also some of the larger international implications and a whole lot more. I'm going to continue the conversation with Brian Meyer. Be right back.
back i'm chatting with brian meyer uh he is the editor over at brazil wire gotta get the book it's now available at brazil wire year of lead washington wall street and the new imperialism in brazil really really important work especially for those of us who uh are outside of brazil who follow it as closely as possible but often miss some of the nuances and some of the uh cult you know uh culturally specific issues and of course uh, not being able to read portuguese makes it harder so we really do depend on outlets like brazil wire and uh, of course i commend you guys over there for all the great work you do now before we went to the break i i, I threw out a couple of topics that i wanted to touch on and i really do want to know about the recent uh development where in the former president Temer, who took over in uh, I guess what we what we could correctly call a constitutional coup or a congressional coup or a legislative coup or whatever you want to call it, uh, he's now in a lot of trouble. And it was recently uh, reported that he had been arrested. I want to know some of the details here. I mean, this is a guy who was a darling of Goldman Sachs and Wall Street, the guy who was there to dismantle the social programs uh, of uh, Lula and of Dilma and uh, somebody who was to reinvigorate neoliberalism and reassure the Wall Street uh, venture capitalists and others. And here we are just a couple of years later and he's in jail. What happened? Well, first of all, this, and this is something that's really important to note, when he was arrested, the, the I call them the hacks, you know, the foreign correspondent community here from these uh, hegemic media corporations like The Guardian and whatever. New York Times, Bloomberg, they all reported like, see, see, Brazil really is impartial when it comes to fighting corruption. They've arrested another president. Now all these people who are saying that Lula's innocent don't have a pot to piss in anymore, blah, 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 blah. Well, Temer's out of prison. He was only in jail for four days. And the charges that, were, that he was facing were that he stole $120 million. Okay, and he got out of jail in four days. Lula... You know, he's in been in jail for a, over a year now on the accusations that he committed undetermined acts of corruption. Like they couldn't even, the judge who prosecuted him was also the man who conducted the investigation. And a legal 
loophole that goes back to the days of the uh, Spanish Inquisition. Sergio Moro acted like an inquisitor in the Inquisition. He conducted an investigation. He judged his own. He ruled on his own investigation with no jury. And he, he convicted Lula. And in exchange for that, removing Lula from the elections last year, he's now the justice minister for Bolsonaro. After he promised that he was an impartial judge, he would never get into politics. So uh, these charges against Lula that um, are related to undetermined acts of corruption that were misreported in The Guardian and other newspapers um, are related to this uh, $200,000 worth of reforms on an apartment that the, the courts were unable to prove that Lula ever owned or set foot in. It wasn't in his name. And, that, and also that the reforms had actually taken place because they went in and filmed afterwards and showed that no reforms had taken place in this building that Lula had never set foot in or owned. And he's in jail serving a 12-year sentence, whereas this, this, these charges against um, Michelle Tamer have mountains of material evidence, video, audio, Swiss bank accounts, offshore bank accounts, and the $120 million of embezzlement is just one of like seven corruption charges that he's facing right now, but he got out of jail in four days. So it just shows that we're living in a state of exception. The rule of law doesn't apply here anymore, really. You know? And, think, and also, one last thing about Temer. Like, no one who knew anything about Temer had any illusion that he was going to save Brazil, even though The Guardian ran an article saying the man who could save Brazil when he, when he took office. Yeah, I think that that's pretty much what we would expect from those type of publications. Even even when they do good work, it, it, it is often sullied by that kind of uh, bullshit. But um, I think that uh, that is a good segue then to ask you about another issue that is somewhat depressing, I think, but also instructive and important to discuss. And that is uh, also something that I have to commend Brazil Wire for having covered uh, quite well. And that is the response, or lack thereof, from the left in the global north, uh, in the United States and in Britain and in uh, some of these other countries where in theory, you have left-wing uh, activists, le communists, socialists, whatever, anarchists, etc., uh, various strains on the left, social democratic and so forth, and yet we seem to have seen, uh, with the example of Brazil, an utter failure of the left to really, A, understand the issues at play, and B, kind of get out of the, get out of the way of its own uh, ideological prism. So I want to just uh, begin by asking you on, on this subject, what are some of the ways, from your perspective, that the U.S. and uh, northern left has failed Brazil? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, uh, we, we witnessed at Brazil where we formed during the lead up to the coup and we were paying attention the entire time to how the media was frame, reframing Brazil from this winner nation, the moment when Obama called Lula the man and all this to this big loser nation and how that was done through a lot of character assassination, a lot of uh, half-truths and innuendo and mistruths about the Brazilian left. And what I witnessed was that there was almost this convergence of the Anglo left with the hegemic media 
on the issue, you know, because the, the, there were two narratives that were built. You know, the, the narrative in places like Bloomberg, New York Times, Guardian, whatever, was that the, the Brazilian left, the PT party, was mired in a sea of corruption. It was the most corrupt uh, political party of all times. It was the biggest corruption scandal of all times with Petrobras, which is, you know, it was all blatantly untrue. Um, yeah, uh, Brazil is a corrupt country. The petroleum industry and the construction industry are two of the five most corrupt industries in the world. Petrobras had a lot of corruption, but it wasn't like hiring private mercenary armies to kill indigenous people in the jungle in Ecuador, like Chevron and Shell were. It wasn't like Shell, like bragging on tape about placing cabinet ministers in the Nigerian government and destroying the Niger Delta area. It was a big petroleum company. So obviously there's corruption in there somewhere. But but this was the hegemic narrative and that somehow Dilma Rousseff was tied up into this corruption, you know, and as it turned, as it played out, she wasn't right. She was like the least corrupt, uh, one of the least corrupt leaders Brazil's ever had. So that was the mainstream media narrative. And then at the same time, there was this so-called vanguard left narrative, which was that in the north, I mean, which was that the PT wasn't really left wing. It wasn't ideologically pure enough. It was neoliberal, okay? And for a left, per, a left wing or an a alleged left wing person to call Lula, for example, a neoliberal, I think is really pretty disgusting because what you're saying then, if his government was neoliberal, that 32 million people rose out of poverty because of neoliberal policies, which has never happened anywhere in the world. Like everywhere where they have deep austerity cuts and and uh other neoliberal uh policy measures uh inequality increases but inequality decreased because there were some of course there were some neoliberal elements to the pt governments because in a way you could argue that brazil fills this kind of sub-imperialist role in terms of capital flows you know and it's tied into the global financial system and and so in order to govern, they had to do neoliberal, some neoliberal stuff. But the fact is, uh, one of the main principles of neoliberalism is minimum wage suppression. And we see that in the U.S. But in Brazil, the, the PT party raised the minimum salary from under $50 a month when they took office to over $300 a month. That's the main reason people rose, rose out of poverty. And they were doing other way too many policy measures to even get into here. but. For example, maintaining uh, 70% of the food consumed in Brazil produced by family farmers through all of these measures, uh, support measures for small farmers and things like that, like ordering public, high, public schools and public hospitals in the countryside to buy all their food from small farmers. It's part of a program called PAA. All of this stuff was going on, but the northern left was labeling, in the lead up to the coup, was labeling the PT party as, as like, ultra-Orthodox neoliberals. And we see this reflected in the coverage. I don't want to name names really, you know, but um, ja Jacobin, for example, ran, we, me and Sean Mitchell and uh, Brian Pitts, they're two American university professors, we did a, a careful analysis of Jacobin's coverage from 2014 to 2017. They ran 38 consecutive articles attacking the PT party. And so it, there's plenty of things you could criticize about 
Lula and about Dilma's governments, obviously, I mean, they weren't perfect by a long shot. But at a time when a coup is underway, I question how these these kind of um, criticisms launched in the North and in publications that support the uh, democratic socialists who, who make compromises with the Democratic Party all the time, you know, like, how did this contribute to like a weakening of solidarity with the Brazilian left during the coup? Because they're, the only people giving any solidarity to the Brazilian left were, were like the AFL-CIO and the, the American labor unions. We weren't getting very much from the so-called you know, American left at this time. And I'm just wondering how things could have changed if it, you know, well, if, if yeah. No, I, I mean, my, fir- my first thought in, in, in you saying that is, is, is what American left? I mean, yeah. I, I live in America. I, I would love to find one. Uh, I, I'm not sure that it really exists so much as it is just, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of shitheads chirping at each other most of the time. Um, but uh, the truth is that um, everything you're saying I agree with. And, and although I, I, I know a number of people who are contributors to Jacobin that I respect and like a lot, uh, I, I cannot say that I disagree, that I disagree with that analysis. I can't. I mean, I think you're dead on. And I, I saw the same thing. And quite frankly, there's a direct parallel, and I'm not speaking specifically about Jacobin, but more just to the global North left in general. There's a very, there's a very clear and striking uh, similarity and parallel to the coverage, uh, recent coverage of Venezuela. Because you find in the midst of an attempted uh, coup and destabilization and overthrow by the U.S. and its proxy forces in Venezuela and internationally, in the midst of all of that, you have leftists who uh, feel like that's the moment to attack Maduro for being corrupt and all this other stuff. There is that tendency on the the, the left in the global north to kind of, uh, I, I, I guess you could, I guess you could call it, you know, a sort of purity politics. Although I, I think what it, what it really comes down to is ideological blindness. Yeah, ideological blindness. First of all, let me just say, like, I have great respect for a lot of people who write for Jacobin, and it, it was just depressing when we did this analysis. You know, I don't know what went wrong, but I'm not trying to single them out because we selected them because we felt they were an example of what was going on in American left media. And yes, this is all totally reflected in Venezuela. So at what point... First of all, why would so-called American leftists, as you say, what American left, who made Americans the people who get to decide how left people in other countries are? You know, Fucking like, exactly. Exactly. Thank you. First. Take some power before you start judging other countries for not being pure left enough or not. 100%. Does pure left in your mind mean you never take power? You, don't, <laughs> you never take one city council in America? You know, seriously, because you're you're speaking my language, Brian, I'm right with you. It's just like it's mind boggling, like, you know, like and also like if if there's a can I swear on this in this broadcast? I notice you're swearing a little bit. Fucking a right. You can. Right. If there's a fucking coup going on organized by your government that you pay taxes to, you might want to start thinking about whether it's the right time or not to start talking about with all the yeah buts. You know, start saying like, oh, well, it is authoritarian. Venezuela's authoritarian. They don't have two million people in their prison system, you know, like the U.S. does. The U.S. now has the second largest prison population of any government in the last hundred years, okay, per capita. It's above 
Stalin's great terror period in the Soviet Union and below the Third Reich in terms of po incarcerated population. And there's slave labor going on, you know, in the prison. So, so why would you think that as an American taxpayer, you have the right to judge other countries on how pure their left is? You know, geez, I mean, look at how hard it is to be leftist anywhere in the world these days. It would be nice to, because at, at one point, you're not really acting like a vanguard leftist anymore. You're acting as a counter leftist. You're doing the opposite because you're not challenging capital. You're just, you're validating capitalism. If you're just during a, a U.S. back coup in Venezuela, you're, you're saying more bad things about Venezuela than you're validating capitalism, really, you know? I couldn't agree more, and and I've I've fought this fight many many times before, and uh, you know you you you'll find yourself being called uh, you know an apologist for dictatorships or whatever yeah. nonsense that whatever nonsense they'll throw at you, and the reality is that uh, the the world is a complex place, and things are not always in black and white, and things are not always in uh, operating under ideal conditions. I think it was a great point you made a few minutes ago about Brazil being essentially a sub imperial power. I think. I think that's, uh, uh, I think, reflected quite well in the way in which it integrated with both the global neoliberal system, but also integrating with the, uh, well, at one point was an emerging sort of BRICS alliance and in, in a sense integrated into overlapping systems of global capitalism. And of course, we've seen tremendous uh, crimes committed by Brazil, including under the PT's leadership. I'm thinking of things like like uh, the, the so-called peacekeeping troops in Haiti and some of the crimes they were committing there and other things happening in the world. But this is not something that goes on one party or on the left. These are institutional and, and, and systemic issues that can't simply be resolved in a couple of years. And that's what I find so obnoxious about most of the left so-called analysis of the PT, of Lula and of Rousseff, is this idea that somehow they were supposed to unwind and roll back 250 50 years of legacy of colonialism in what five years come on yeah no i mean like this i was just actually in south africa for a week with a guy who i think has appeared on your show before patrick bond i don't know if you know him but oh uh, yeah I, patrick and i had a conversation just i don't know maybe like six months ago uh, all right yeah so i was uh actually in these BRICS meetings and stuff and the point i was making is this you know what the best you could get in Brazil, which after all, it's the second largest economy in the Americas. And, it, you know, it's a capital. It was a capitalist, very capitalist economy that Lula was elected to, to take over. And the best that the left could do down here was this kind of hybrid system that maintained some neoliberal macroeconomic policies, mixing them with what you would call like developmentalist, which is like third world Keynesianism policies to generate internal manufacturing and consumption and raise the minimum wage and uh, build social safety nets and stuff like that. It was a kind of hybrid system, and as was their foreign policy. You know, they did some things that were obnoxious. The BRICS have done some uh, pretty shitty things in South Africa. I know that and in other places. And like Petro, the Brazilian corporations that received uh, financing from the BNDS National Development Bank, like Petrobras, they moved into the Niger Delta when when Shell was kicked out by the guerrillas there. I'm, I'm sure they weren't like acting like saints in the Niger Delta. So the, the point is, though, that you can cherry pick anecdotes 
from the PT years to make the PT look like a horrible, you know, sub-imperialist aggressor and a neoliberal uh, government that was like weakening the left. Or you could just cherry pick things out to make them look like socialists. The point is, there's a lot of nuance there. You have to look at the entire system, the entire way things were running. And in that case, you'll see that in general, it was the farthest left government that Brazil's ever had. They made the most progress in reducing poverty. And they did a lot of things in foreign relations, like bringing Cuba into the OAS, like helping found UNASUL with Hugo Chavez and things like that, that were, that were reminiscent of like the non-aligned movements in the post-colonial period in Africa and India and places like that, that were really about kind of like creating spaces of counter hegemony to U.S. imperialism. So if you, t if you take it all together, then you have a complex picture which shows that in general, it was one of the best uh, governments in the world for that period, I think, you know? I mean, you look at examples like Venezuela, Ecuador, and, and other countries, they're much smaller economies. They had farther left governments, but they, it would be hard to push through. Also, like, you know, in Brazil, they never had, the PT never had control of the military. Chavez had control of the military and, and respect of the military in Venezuela. So you can see, like, considering all of the challenges and pressures and international capital and all of this, I think they did, you know, a pretty good job, uh, especially pulling all these people out of poverty and opening up the, the higher education system for Afro-Brazilians and through this massive affirmative action program. But, you know, you, the point is, though, that some, you could cherry pick examples and portray them as, you know, this horrible bunch of sellouts. And that's what some people were doing, you know, on the, in the international left, I think. And yeah. it's one of the things that generated a lot of misunderstanding. Yep. And, and, and the thing is that there is this really obnoxious sort of smug self-satisfaction, I think, that certain leftists have from kind of this holier-than-thou form of analysis where nothing ever measures up to the, 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 the socialism that I know and that I espouse because I am the vanguard with the red flag in hand, etc., etc. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's posers. It's, it's posturing. It's, it's political play-acting. It's cosplay. You know, it's not real politics. It's like lifestyle leftism. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. Now, uh, in the in the time we have remaining, I do want to ask a couple of other questions, just just to kind of wrap up some of the issues that we've introduced. But just to finish off this point that you were just talking about with regard to uh, the period in which the PT was able to successfully implement a lot of these reforms that have uh, to some to some extent leveled the playing field, although it's of course uh, a long haul, a long way to go to do that, but. I want to just ask you about commodity prices and the role that the collapse of commodity prices right. played or may have played in a lot of the political developments that have happened in the last five years. Because 
Brazil, like Venezuela, like Bolivia, and and a few other countries in Latin America, really benefited tremendously from sky-high oil prices. Obviously, Venezuela is a good example of that as well. And when those oil prices, which at one point hit almost $150 a barrel, when they tanked to like below $30 a barrel, and you consider a loss of revenue of upwards of 80% on a major uh, export commodity... uh, uh, to, to to what extent did that really open the door for all of these things? And maybe another way to ask that would be, had that not happened and commodity prices stayed relatively high in comparison to where they are now, do you think that things would be different? Well, uh, this is a great question because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. And I even hear you know, people on the left talking about the influence of the commodity boom on the success of the PT governments, which kind of ignores the 2008 world financial crisis, which Brazil didn't fall into recession during because of Keynesian economic stimulus package that uh, Lula pushed through preemptively six months before the crisis to, to boost internal manufacturing and consumption and things like that. But yeah, there was a commodity boom. Brazil, for the last 500 years, Brazil has benefited from hundreds of commodity booms. This was the only commodity boom in which a significant percentage of the population, 36 million people, moved out of poverty. So the fact that these people moved out of poverty didn't have as much to do with the commodity boom as it did with redistributive economic policies, you know, such as raising the minimum wage, tying the pension Reform, tying the monthly pension payments to the minimum wage because before they came into power, there was little as half minimum salary that elderly people were receiving, and other measures, redistributive measures. Um, now, uh, for much of Lula's presidency and Dilma's first term of her presidency, the economy was run by a Keynesian or a, development, a developmentalist, to be more specific, developmentalism based on economists from South America like Howell Prebisch and Selsen Furtado from the 40s and 50s that built on Keynesianism from a peripheral capitalist, you know, from a peripheral perspective, countries that were on the periphery of the capitalist system, whatever. So as a good developmentalist, uh, Guido Mantega and the PT governments, they built up $370 billion in foreign reserves. Uh, from the 15 billion that they had in foreign reserves when Lula took office, they built up one trillion reais in national reserves. Uh, they they paid off all the debt to the IMF and lifted all the conditionalities, and then they lent like 20 billion to the IMF. And Brazil became the third biggest lender nation to the United States, with lending out about 260 billion to the U.S. with interest. Now, what that meant is that. Any Brazilian economist knows that the economy suffers from boom and bust cycles. Like nobody was surprised to see the commodities bust, starting with, I guess it was Saudi oil dumping initially uh, designed maybe to destabilize the Russian economy, but it had big effects on Brazil and Venezuela too. So what happened after the coup, the 2016 coup, is that Michel Temer decided not to spend any of this money. It's still all in the reserves, and in and so. You see in the the Guardian and all, you know, I, Guardian's another whipping publication for me. But you see in these newspapers like Bloomberg, oh, Brazil's run out of money. 
the commodities cycle is busted. They've got to start cutting social pro programs. But no, they're sitting on, you know, enough money to ride out a commodities bust cycle. That was the entire plan of the way that the PT was managing the economy. Just now, the Chicago boy, Paulo Geddes, who lived in Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship, who's running Bolsonaro's economy for him, who says that every president since the end of the dictatorship in Brazil has been left wing, a communist. He's insane. He's now beginning to talk about accessing the foreign reserves. Like if, you, if you look at the reserves, there's no need to cut pension. There was no need to enact a constitutional amendment freezing education and health spending for 20 years in a country that has a growing population. There's no need to do any of that austerity. And the foreign press played into it by not talking about the amount of reserves that were uh, set up in Brazil for this. You know, so so first of all, you get vanguard leftists saying that Lula just had lifted people out of poverty because of a commodities boom is asinine because it's like you're it's like a vanguard leftist supporting neoliberal economic theory that. You know, that boom cycles reduce poverty had never been proven to happen anywhere without redistribution. And secondly, Brazil never went broke. It's not broke right now. It's just pretending to be broke so they can push through deep austerity reforms to placate uh, international financial capital. That's a great analysis. I really appreciate that. I actually have to admit, I didn't know that the uh, reserves were a, a, as large as, the, as they are. Uh, that is... That's interesting. I have to um, I have to look into that. I really appreciate that. So uh, just a couple of minutes remaining here. I want to ask a couple of final questions. Uh, you kind of touched on it very briefly in the early part of our conversation, but I want to return to it. You said that there were kind of two, I, I guess you could say, uh, two primary uh, lines of organizing on the left. I think the one was organizing around Lula and the other was organizing against Bolsonaro, organizing the communities and and so forth. And um, a couple of months back when I spoke to uh, Mike Fox and we were talking about the social movements, uh, by the way, I would recommend people go back and listen to my interview with Michael Fox on uh, Counterpunch Radio, where we talked about a lot of these issues as well. Um, the the movement around uh, the assassination of Marielle Franco, that was a big uh, movement that actually, it seems like, has translated into at least some presentation in the legislature. I know that a number of uh, women and LGBT uh, members of the community who are, I guess, collectively known as the Marielles, kind of inspired by Marielle Franco, are now elected officials. So I, I just want to get a read of the landscape of the social movements, where they're intersecting. Um, is it is it about freeing Lula? Is it about organizing for revolution? I mean, what are the primary lines of organizing? Help us to understand what's happening on the streets within the left. Well, first of all, when I when I talk about the left, when I introduce myself, I always say I consider myself to be a member of the organized left in Brazil. And the organized left is the coalition of social movements and labor unions that forms the historic base of, you know, uh, of the PT party, which would be the MST, the CUT Labor Union Confederation, and um, the urban social movements that occupy abandoned buildings and fight for them to be converted to ownership-based social housing and things like that. 
This is a base of around 15 million people. And within the organized left, we have other left political parties as well, such as the PSOL party, the Socialism and, Liber and Liberty Party, which is particularly strong in Rio de Janeiro because the PT party kind of imploded in Rio. It's, it's really weak. And so they filled the vacuum. And that's where Marielle Franco is from and um, was from, you know, unfortunately. But now what's happened is that the PSOL has historically gotten like one or 2% in presidential elections. It's about the same size as the Green Party nationally in the US, except that it has like 10 congressmen elected, so it's bigger in the federal government. But since Lula's arrest, like they've all rallied around, you know, getting Lula out of jail. And so the PSOL and the PT and the, the Brazilian Communist Party are all united. And the, there's this ongoing fight now against um, criminalization of the social movements, criminalization of the LGBTQ population, which is being led by some of these lawmakers who come out of Marielle's tradition, you know. And uh, but the the in addition to that, the big fight right now is really against the pension reforms. You know, and in addition, free, you know, freeing Lula as well. So, for example, it was the one year anniversary of Lula's political imprisonment on April 7th. And there were protests in 30 cities around the world, uh, tens of thousands of people on the street in dozens of cities and you know, across Brazil as well. And the pension reforms have been building up. The fight against the pension reforms has been building up to a kind of general strike which is gonna be called if it looks like they might pass in Congress. Now in 2017, there was a general strike that was adhered to by 35 million people where they just shut down all of the major cities in Brazil, all of the main thoroughfares with burning tires, the buses and trains stopped running and the entire country was shut down for a day. And they're talking about doing that again, maybe on May Day now. But we, we have to see how it plays out because as the you know, the union and social movement leaders say, as uh, people I've talked to in the CUT and in the MSC say, like, just taking it to the streets doesn't work anymore like it used to, because and even the strike as a protest mechanism has been weakened by the Toyotization of the manufacturing system. And when, when you take it to the streets now, when, when the left puts 200,000 people on the street, all of the media says it was 5,000, it was 10,000. And they just send cameras over there before the protest starts and take photos to make it look much smaller than it, it really was. Whereas when the right holds a protest, they make it look much bigger than it, it really was. You know, so the so the fight it's not just about going on strike and and taking it to the streets. It's about pressuring lawmakers at the local level. It's about holding uh, meetings in schools and churches across the country in poor neighborhoods to edu to orient people about what would happen if these retirement protests go through. So it's like a, it's a complex strategy that's being used. And Tamer failed to push these pension reforms through. It was a big failure of his administration. And uh, I sincerely hope that we can defeat it now again, and that they'll fail. And th this is something that all of the Northern press, hegemonic press is really excited about pension reforms down here, but it, I think it's not going to happen. So that, so the, I, I guess those are the three big fights right now. 
fighting in a defensive way against the attacks on the poor, on social movements, on the LGBT plus community, against the genocide of black youth by the military police is one. The other is fighting for freedom for Lula, and the, and the other one is fighting against these neoliberal pension reforms. That's really interesting. My last question to you, and I know that you don't have a crystal ball, so I'm not asking you to give me a well-thought-out prediction necessarily, but um, given what you were saying earlier about some of the um, uh, bourgeois press's, uh, you know, I, I, what, do we, what do we call it? Uh, I don't know about predictions, but certainly warnings that Bolsonaro might not survive a year, let alone a, ter- uh, a full term. Help us understand what that actually means, because uh, in the United States, for example, you know, we don't have the kind of system like you have in much of Europe, for instance, where it's parliamentary and you can call snap elections and that sort of thing. It doesn't work that way in the U.S., and I think our listeners should understand how it works in Brazil. So what happens if Bolsonaro's popularity continues to plummet? Is there uh, a mechanism for removal from office? Is there a mechanism for calling new elections? Is it something that would be solely done at the protesting and street level? Uh, how would how would it happen? And then I guess the other part of that question is, do you see something like that happening in the near future? Okay, well, first of all, it's it's a little bit confusing because a lot of people call what happened in 2016 a parliamentary coup, but it was an impeachment. Brazil doesn't have a parliamentary system. It's much like the United States. It's a Congress and a Senate. And so they, you can't throw out a president on a no-confidence vote like you could maybe in England or something, you know? So he would have to be killed or impeached, you know? And either of those things could happen especially when you got the military involved in this. You know, the, the day before uh, the Supreme Court justice was going to rule on this U.S. Department of Justice-backed lawfare operation called Operation Car Wash, which ended up putting Lula in jail on nothing, you know. Uh, the day before that was going up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court justice in charge of it died in a helicopter crash. And in 2014, one of the leading presidential candidates died in a plane crash a couple of weeks a couple of weeks before the election. So we know that the military is good at uh, not necessarily from those examples. I'm not saying that we know what really happened, but we know from the dictatorship era they loved having people die in car crashes and plane crashes and stuff. So there's a chance that the military could just decide to take Bolsonaro out because, after all, it's a bunch of generals taking orders from a captain and within the military hierarchy a lot of you know generals don't like to take orders from a former captain all right and on a very basic level you know so there's that and there's a chance that he could resign or that he could be impeached you know the odds of that happening looked pretty high there even there's also rumors going around that he has stomach cancer you know but but the odds of him you know, getting thrown out looked pretty good until he visited the CIA headquarters a couple of weeks ago with Lula's inquisitor, Sergio Moro. And the joke was they made in Brazil that Moro's Wi-Fi kicked in without a password when he walked into the building. But um, that seems to have sent a signal to the people who were plotting against Bolsonaro in the Brazilian government that they've got some backing. And so in a way, I feel like 
this talk about Bolsonaro not making it through the year kind of reminds me of what a lot of people were saying about Trump, you know, because like Trump. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's exactly And it just right. seems like the new normal, maybe, for presidents now in this stage of capitalism or something. Maybe it's just a new normal. Maybe they're going to be yeah. talking about this for the next eight years, but he's about uh, to fall. <laughs> right. He's, he's about to fall until his term limits expire. Exactly. Um, well, on, on that really thoroughly fucking depressing note, I, I guess we'll leave it there. Although it's not entirely, it's, it's not entirely, de- no, it's not entirely depressing because I do, I do have a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, hope and a positive outlook for the social movements in Brazil. Everything I've ever learned about them and having spoken to people on the ground in Brazil many times over the years, uh, I am encouraged by the social movements, by the kind of organizing that's happened in the last, uh, I'd say, 18 to 24 months. Uh, this is something that I think uh, over the long term could actually ultimately uh, turn into something more than just protests and more than just a movement, but into something truly revolutionary. But we will have to wait and see about that. So, uh, Brian Meyer, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Again, Brazil Wire, that's Brazil with an S for my American friends. Brazil Wire is the website. You got to go to that as your kind of your one-stop shop for analysis on Brazil, the book absolutely must read Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Get yourself a copy from the website brazilwire.com. Brian Meyer, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking with us today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot. I wish I could end on a more jubilant note, but the struggle continues. The struggle continues, and hopefully next time we talk, we'll be we'll be celebrating a victory. So thank you again, listeners. Thank you, as always. We'll chat again real soon.